Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are wrapping up Labor Cup. Yes, we did do a show immediately after the Federer-Nadal doubles match. Thank you for everyone who watched uh, and commented on that one. Uh, and, you know, some things have happened since then, including two Novak Djokovic matches, uh, a Rafa Nadal withdrawal. And uh, we are still in our phase of thinking about Federer, reflecting on Federer. So we're going to end with the Federer topic, talk about uh, his his play style, how it evolved and how it may affect tennis in the future or not. Um, and, and just kind of the influence that Federer's style um has let's talk uh let's start with nadal who after friday which was the first day of labor cup immediately withdrew for personal reasons and uh and went back home to mallorca where he's he's said that you know he's had to deal with things that uh presumably have to do with um his wife maria being due uh, i believe first week of october so coming up very very soon It, it basically confirms amy that Rafa came to London to be there for Roger and that he probably would not have shown up had had he not felt like he needed to be there. Yes, and I think you guys were pretty spot on about that because he had technically committed to play Labor Cup for a while, um, but with the injury-plagued second part of the season that he's had, we all or you guys definitely thought he would pull out, but he didn't pull out. And, you know, the timing of it is really interesting because Roger said in in one press interview that he gave that trying to keep the cap on the decision to retire was really stressful for him. And he had to keep it super, super close to the vest. And that people that he considers himself pretty close to Um, did not know until 48 hours before, but then he said that Rafa knew for 10 days. So, I mean, that, that just tells you like how close these guys really became and have become, even though they were rivals, even though, um, Roger beat Rafa in the 2017 Australian Open final in in a great match that that must have on some level devastated Rafa. All of that, despite all of that, um, they became really close friends. And I think in some ways almost because of that, and I think that's one of the neat things, there's the, the picture that's gone all around the world is that great picture of them crying and holding hands. And it's so, it's really about what sports and maybe even more so this sport because it's so one-on-one is about, about competition and camaraderie. And I think, obviously I think Rafa was crying because his elder Federer is leaving and that's sad and it's great for But in a way in competition, you ask questions of someone and you make them better. And I think that's what they both shared together, what they both 
fantastic. And they made magic along the way too. They made some breathtaking tennis. And, and that's what they were crying for too, because they know the, the opponents are joined together. I think that's what often gets forgotten in tennis is that this is a relationship game. This isn't a one, this isn't an individual sport. This is two people versus one another engaged. And it's a, like in martial arts and they're coexisting. And Roger and Rafa know that just like the way Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova know that. And, um, and Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe for all their combustible qualities, they know that too. Yeah, it's a great point. This is not golf. This is not archery. This is not swimming. Uh, you know, it, it really does take two to tango. And uh, Rafa said that part of, you know, with, with Roger leaving the tour, part of him leaves. And I mean, it's such a legacy of this is of, of the big three and of the Federer and Nadal rivalry is that they made each other better. I thoroughly believe that I always refute every single time someone says, could you imagine if the other two wasn't there? Novak would have won 30. Federer <laughs> would have won 30. Nadal would have won 30. I always say no, no, they would never have gotten as good as they got. Well, and you also think that and Radek would have won six and Murray would have gotten that one. And, and what about Marin Cilic? I mean, it's just go, you go on and on. And the truth is they, you're right. And they, they made each other better players. All three of them, all the players make each other better players. And then, um, and it makes you a better person when you're that committed to something as all these folks are to tennis. It makes you a better person. You helped me find things about myself I didn't know I could find. And I did it through these skills and all these other things. One more thing on, on the photo, because it is it has been massively influential. And then we'll kind of get back to business here um, because I we, we kind of missed it the first time uh, we saw it. We hinted at the emotion, but I don't know that I fully processed what a big deal that image was going to be. I think it literally might be the lasting image of the Federer Nadal um, history, really. Um, how about the the emotion and the fact that they were holding hands i, I guess it, it did make me realize to another level just how close they feel to each other that emotional connection because i mean this is rogers like a, a moment he was clearly you know terrified of and, and never wanted to come and it's in some ways a funeral and he's like holding on to rafa for comfort in that in that very moment and Roth is holding on to him, and they're aware. Yeah. Look, they're aware of the, the passing of time and 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 life. And it's not how great that we have these things like sports that allow us to process through these feelings because it's it's different than real life, but it is real life, but it's not real life. I mean, it's kind of the whole way we engage, why we so engage sports. And I think this is this to me. You know, you guys know I don't like to make superlatives, and I'm scratching for number two. But this to me is like the greatest tennis picture of all time greatest testimony to what our sport is about. I think the, if you really want to cut to the core of it, it has to do with male vulnerability and two straight, I, or maybe the proper word is cisgender men holding hands with each other and crying and showing the world that this is okay to show this kind of vulnerability and emotion. I mean, it's so much bigger than sport. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast, my son was watching with his friend 
And the message that they took away is it's okay to, to cry or, or show vulnerability. And that's a lesson that, I mean, I could tell them that, but for them to see that, um, it's just another chapter in Roger's legacy and Rafa's legacy that will continue on. And oh, by the way, there were also iconic pictures of Novak with his hands on Roger's shoulders when, when Roger is very emotional and crying. And um, he's in there too. Yeah. So um, the three of them together really uh, did something special that night. Those emotions only earned the cauldron of competition of the authentic, real vulnerability that competition is too. They didn't generate those tears because they did drills, which they hit. And this is kind of the this value of athletic competition. I'm not saying everything in life is a competition, but when you create these games, and that's one of the things I think, uh, I found Nadal exceptionally compelling in creating, he's kind of, kind of the avatar. You know, if Novak's the avatar of discipline, and devotion in ways, and Roger's the avatar of creativity and breath. Nadal is the whole aspect of what competition is. And you create these, you have this game and these rules and within it, you bring your heart. And that's where you end up down the road where you realize these people. Yannick Noah, the player said this once, he goes, uh, we all love each other. We just don't want to admit it. Cause of well, what well. I, I don't know that everyone loves each other. I know that everyone loves each other. But the notion, but the notion John McEnroe they, said he loves everybody. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty, new. <laughs> uh, all right. So we started this. We had to talk about that. Um, but yeah, Nadal, Nadal went back to Mallorca after Friday right away. D do we look at the end of his season? I mean, the more I'm, I'm looking at kind of what we saw in New York and now this. Um, not only did you have the ab issue, uh, I think it's very clear based on everything that Rafa has said, and we're not going into details, we don't care, it's private, um, right? Uh, but everything that's been said, it seems clear that like right now, his head and his heart is at home. And I think that might have been the case when he was in flushing as well. Um, and, and I think this just further confirms that. So I'm kind of looking at Nadal's and I'm kind of looking at his U S open a little bit differently now. Um, even more so based on, based on what we know, uh, are you with me on that, Joel? Yeah, I would agree with you, Gail. I think you're right. I think he was already had his, his heart and mind were thinking about his family. And then the labor cup was kind of like a, a different kind of family obligation to his family of his brotherhood of tennis. And then it's like, okay. All right, let's go back to Mallorca. And uh, again, uh, I think we're looking at a 2023 Rafael Nadal. You guys, what do you guys think? Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll say prayers um, that everything is fine and uh, yeah. very much look forward to seeing him in 2023. And, and we know what he did last year when he had a several months break. So we'll see what he can do this year. Just to clarify for listeners, uh, he hasn't said that his 2022 is over. I, I also think it is, but this is just, these are just predictions by, by us, just the crystal ball. Um, let's see what happens. And yes, I, I echo uh, what Amy said about hoping and, uh, and praying that everything turns out uh, perfectly. All right, uh, we have Novak Djokovic, two matches, first since Wimbledon, insane. Uh, he comes out 
and he destroys uh, Francis Tiafo. It, it was just really kind of breathtaking uh, for you know the first match in 76 days. But then he loses uh, to Felix Ojeay Aliassime. So uh, taking both matches and kind of putting them into uh, one Laver Cup reflection, what did you think of Novak's return to tennis, Amy? Well, it's come out just within the last, I don't know, 48 hours that he said he had a wrist problem that's been bothering him for the last four to five days. So that would put it back before the start of Labor Cup. So maybe even in preparation for Labor Cup, he had this wrist injury that was bothering him. Still, the performance he put on against Tiafo was impressive, especially given how well Tiafo's been playing going back to the US Open and his run there. And I, I think of the match against Alcaraz in the semifinals. And um, now you, you might say that Tiafo was up late the previous night and had to go through that very emotional experience with Roger's ceremony and playing the match. But from a tactical standpoint, um, Novak, who can be considered one of the greatest returners of all time, really dug into and got into the Tiafo service games, which other players of late have not been able to do. So um, I thought that match, he looked brilliant. And then the other match, he was just shaking out his wrist a lot. He was probably feeling the exhaustion from the whole event. And um, I, I'm really hoping the wrist will be okay going into this week for Tel Aviv. And let's not forget he also played a doubles match. Right. He played a doubles match too, and he and Berrettini played one. And yeah, I hope so for Tel Aviv too. But uh, yeah, that was distressing. Not so much that he lost, but that he was injured. And uh, maybe he was lost because he was injured, but... Uh, because that was one of the command performance from Felix. Yeah, uh, so it was. It was three matches in two days after not playing for 76 days. And and that certainly has its its challenges. Um, as far as far as like the right wrist, I, I think the way it materialized against Felix is the forehand was just slow and it wasn't penetrative. And uh, the first serve was really where Felix outgunned Novak significantly. And uh, the returns in play battle was uh, won very uh, decisively by FAA. And usually Novak has an advantage in that stat, if not um, can kind of stay on par with anyone, even the biggest servers in the world. Uh, but Felix averaging 10 miles per hour faster on first serve, hitting uh, you know 10 to 15 more aces. I think aces were 13 to one. Um, and then the first serve points one. Felix was at 81%. And Novak was under 70. So it was, uh, I thought the baseline rallies were pretty even, but Novak's serve was doing very little, and Felix's serve was a, a huge factor. Uh, I think FAA has a top 10 first serve in men's tennis, and it was just an A plus day. Um, so, you know, you throw that combined with the fact that Djokovic just didn't have his own serve plus one, with the forehand being slow and the first serve being a little slow um, going for him. In, in that respect, I thought that kind of doomed him, uh, but but it was weird the wrist thing because yeah it, it looked it looked he looked great in every aspect against Francis just before then.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the Labor Cup is an interesting event and it illuminates the ways, kind of provides a way that all these events have a way of how players can take away from it what they so wish. The Labor Cup is kind of this, more than any event, it's very clear that players take what they want from it. What, you know, TFO had a great weekend in doubles and singles and more. And just, even though he lost to Novak, but he carried the day at the end. So we can take something very strong from that. Novak probably said, okay, got some practice going, you know, Roger and Rafa had their moments. And it kind of illuminates to me how a lot of the whole circuit works. It's like, we know if we were looking back, if, if Novak had played Mets last week and lost in the semis, we'd say, okay, well, Novak, you're back in action. You played a few matches, but you're building up towards this. On the other hand, the guy who wins Mets, you know, it's a big deal. So it's just interesting how, and I think the Labor Cup illuminates that for me because it's so clearly that multifaceted, that, that smorgasbord of emotions tennis i'm not sure if i'm clear about this but i don't know you guys say some more of you well one thing that was has been abundantly clear to me is that how the fans feel about labor cup is different than how the players feel about labor cup especially some of the younger guys i don't care if you want to call it an exhibition or a quasi exhibition or an atp event whatever when you put young men on a team and you say this is your team uh go try to win uh i don't care if it's pick up kickball um these guys are going to go all out and try to win and try to pump each other up and strategize and high five each other so it takes on meaning um as the event goes on and when they're put into this construct so uh, they definitely wanted to win everybody wanted to win and the um competition level is high so uh that's how i feel about labor cup and that's the context that i see it in that doesn't make i don't think that makes the fans wrong yeah that's 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 in parallel with fans i think the fans are loving it too because they're seeing these great players as we said last time in a rare unique situation in a way that the fans might not engage with a with a tournament some fans love it i think it's an overall huge success um but there are a lot of fans that are critical of it and there's a lot of um as john wertheim put it uh management consultanting where we just want to take this very successful event that just happened and and try to to change it or tweak it because um some people are have an attitude toward it that uh it isn't a regular event points aren't given uh there's some um criticism that the matches actually do count and your overall 
ATP. It's ridiculous. But it's, it's ridiculous there. That the matches but it's count. there. Yeah, but oh, I, oh, you're you're a, saying it's for you're one of those right, right. people. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But but I, that doesn't mean I don't like the Labor Cup. But if I'm commentating a match, right, and I'm trying to be honest with with my with the viewers of the match, I I, I can't say in good faith that the head to head is two to one without saying, hey, footnote. One of them was in Labor Cup, and they played a 10-point tiebreak to, to decide the third set. I, I can't. Uh, you had Federer and Nadal coaching the guy at every changeover. I, I can't in good faith. So you can count it in the head-to-head, -head, in the stats, whatever. For me, no. Sorry. It, it's just not part of the regular tour. So, you know, I think the Labor Cup is very successful. I think it's a good event. I also think it shouldn't count. Uh, yeah, I think that too. I think it's fine. I like it the way it is, and I don't think it should hit any points or rankings of head to head, but, but it's, it's fantastic. And I think the management consulting comes in because it's, it's new and it's malleable. You know, we're not, we're not reforming an indoor uh, ATP or WTA <laughs> 250 or 500. Those are pretty much what they are. They're these seven day tennis things, but this Which thing is has, ironic because those are the things that need reform. Well, that's right. But they, this but, doesn't, but you'll, you'll notice that nobody's talking about how to reform Mets. Well, that, well, that's right. But that's, that has a whole other construct here because they've been around for so long. And it's kind of like, well, there they are, and here, and here's, and here's the Labor Cup, and it's got, and it's got this thing with the different matches counting on different days. I mean, you know what? Actually, you know, what I felt sorry for in the Labor Cup. I felt sorry for Casper Ruud. He got things started, and he won here in one point. This guy's been to two Slam finals. I mean, it's kind of an interesting lineup thing of how you how you orchestrate it. You know, he could have. We do juggle it. You bring him in on the last day, and how do you how do you manage the lineup of Labor Cup? Because that I I think that scoring system, who did whoever did that for this kind of event, is is a genius in a way to make each successive day count more. That's Are you saying Bjorn Borg got outcoached by John McEnroe? I'm not <laughs> saying I don't know who I don't even know how those decisions are made. I'm, no, maybe maybe um, Patrick McEnroe outcoached Thomas Enquist. Yeah. No, I'm I'm joking. It's just because we, you know, that's a baseball, football, basketball conversation. Right. They got out coached, and you know, you never hear that in tennis. Um, well, no, you shouldn't. Yeah, no. and you won't. Right. Uh, okay, so uh, let's let's move on to Federer. You do have um, Nad uh, Djokovic rather in Tel Aviv. He is there, by the way. So there's the wrist has not kept him from going to Israel. Uh, he will be playing doubles with. Um, with uh, Ehrlich, Jonathan Ehrlich, who he won his only career doubles title with in 2010, I believe, Queens. Uh, they're teaming up again. Uh, Ehrlich's about to retire. He's from Tel Aviv. He's 45 years old. Uh, I'm actually kind of excited to, to watch yeah. that Yeah, That'll be fun. Yeah. That'll be fun. Good I remember for Ehrlich, Novak. Ehrlich and Andy Ram were an excellent doubles team. And uh, Ehrlich, I've, I've chatted with him before. He's a very nice person. I think that's going to be an intriguing, an intriguing week in Tel Aviv. Yeah, so uh, we we get Djokovic tennis to to cover um, over the next uh, couple of weeks, which is going to be fun. Uh, let's talk about Federer because we always want to hit a Federer topic um, as as we continue to to decompress from from all of this that we've seen. Uh, I think that we want to discuss where Federer's style or, or how Federer's style has evolved and um, how that might affect kind of the future or not, or, or maybe it's a thing of the past. Right. So, so first of all, Joel Federer, you know, you, you talk about your experience and your memories watching him play Pete Sampras um, 
in, in, in 2003 when he beat him or 2001, 2001 rather, um, when he beat him versus how he kind of quickly begun, began to evolve. And that's something that never stopped. Can you talk, how do you see, you know, Federer's stylistic evolution? Well, the big change when he came onto the circuit, he was playing a one-handed net rushing based game akin to some other players of his time, such as the elder Sampras, Patrick Rafter, Tim Henman. And that's how Roger thought he needed to play some, particularly on grass, not everywhere, but particularly on, on the grass. And then the big change happened kind of smack in the early phase of his career. The year after he beat Sampras, the grass starts to be, is, the grass has changed. Very different Wimbledon grass by 2002 from even 2001. And by 2003, when he wins it, he's much more of a baseliner. And, and we, the three of us, were, were chatting about this earlier. That was a big, I would call, what, that was a radical revamp, reinvention of Roger Federer. That he be, and he's spoken about that and how everything from the surfaces to the strings to the ground strokes, to all these things. And then I think what he did, he kind of added, he kind of dimensionalized himself by taking this broad base that he'd had from a very young age. I mean, he wasn't a pure serve volley guy when he came on. He, he had lots of tools. The way, the way we one-handers think they're really neat to have, slice and top spin and drop shots and all that kind of stuff. And then I think he kind of began to embrace them more. In 2009, he, took on, he kind of added the drop shot more. And, and then later in 2017 came the new and improved backhand. And those are just a few things he did along the way. So do you think that the the contemporary Federer, the one that wasn't, you know, in 2001, but the one that was winning majors um, from starting in, in 2003 going to, you know, 2018, right? Was there a lot of, like, influence of kind of uh, 90s influence in Federer's game? Is it fair to say? Like, do you see that or... Or not so much. Oh, Federer was very. I talked to him. He's he knew about Sampras. He worshipped Edberg, who he later brought onto his team. And so I think you're right. I think a good way to look at the future of Roger's influence is to go backwards to see what shaped Roger. And and Roger was obviously. I mean, Boris Becker was an influence on the young Roger. I mean, again, the notion of being this dynamic guy with a big forehand and a dynamic kind of backhand and coming to it. I would say the three biggest influences on. Better would be Edberg, Sampras, and Becker. Of that influenced Roger, and then from there he took it to his level of play. You know, there's a famous scene in the movie *Bridesmaids*, one of my favorite movies of all time. Coincidentally, it's actually the preamble to the tennis scene, which is just iconic, where the women go out there and get after it. But the the scene that immediately precedes it, um, Kristen Wiig and uh, Rose Byrne are having a conversation about change. And Kristen Wiig says, um, I don't think people ever really change. I think that they pretty much stay the way they are. And Rose Byrne says, no, I think people can change. And Kristen goes, no, they stay the way they are. No, they can change. And they, they start to like, which, you know, sets up the tennis scene. But if you really think about it, it's a very interesting uh, debate because we each have our own feelings about the extent to which human beings can change. 
And Federer believes that people can change. And I've heard him talk about this quite a bit. In fact, he just talked about it in his extended press conference that he did leading into the Labor Cup. And he was asked by, might have been like Simon Briggs, uh, which was his, what's the thing that he's most proud of in his game over the years and how it all unfolded. And he said that when uh, I'll pull up the quote, he said that people may not remember this about me, but very early in my career, quote, I was famous for being quite erratic at the beginning of my career, not very consistent. Then I went on to become one of the most consistent players ever. And it's quite a shock to me. So, you know, and, and he also, people may not remember this, but he also had a change in temperament. He was more temperamental um, in, in the early days and when he, when he was coming up. Um, and then that's not the Roger we really know at all. We know him as, as gracious and kind and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, he really did evolve and change over the course of his career. And I think that just, I, I wrote a piece on his forehand and just looking at the stats, I realized that so many more forehands started to be hit, just forehands in general, forehand winners, forehand errors, forehand ground strokes started to be hit over the course of the years. And um, Roger won pretty much in every era. So then what Roger knew he needed to do, it's like, I mean, it's not just a matter of becoming a serve volley guy to a baseline. It's like, and that's going to be accomplished with the forehand. I mean, it'd be interesting to do, to look at pre-03, how many forehands better hit a match compared to 03. You know, we're talking about, we're obviously talking about running around backhands, not just playing a point through the middle. And I think what we, we grow, change, we grow. So we have, and I think the commonality, Federer erratic to Federer gracious is like, Federer was seeking forms of excellence. So always, and his vision of the game was to be, was to enjoy it and to be great in that way. But he, um, yeah, he, he constantly, and again, I'm gonna make my case about competition. You have to, you have to constantly improve. You improve because everybody else is, so you have to. And that doesn't mean is the Federer of 2017 better than the Federer of 2007? He's different. You probably learned to do different things in different ways, whether involving movement or speed or any number of things. Yeah, so we've hit on the temperament. We've hit on some of the technical changes, drop shot backhand. Uh, one thing we we hadn't mentioned is the technology, which he also, which is very hard for some players. Andy Murray can't do it. Uh, Federer did did <laughs> go to the bigger racket head uh, as as he felt his technology started to become outdated. Um, and, and that was kind of in tandem with, I think the, the flattening out of the one-handed backhand, being able to hit over the return, having the stability on that particular shot, which was so key in, uh, in 2017 and 18, but it's, it's interesting because I, I do feel like at a certain point, Federer started to become an outlier, a stylistic outlier on the tour. I, I think in the 2010s as string technology started to you know i think players started to get used to this stiff and very spinny kind of polyester string um there was a realization and i i think nadal embodies this quite well that you don't the forehand can be such a big weapon the ground strokes can be so heavy 
that you can create damage from well behind the baseline um, without really risking a lot, you know, by with maintaining margin. And it led, I think, to a lot of net allergies, players not coming to net mm-hmm. and staying back. And then you have a, a group of players who are baseline walls, force fields, Medvedev, Zverev, Djokovic. Um, and I'm just wondering if this is going to start to flip the other way, if it's going to flip the Federer way. It I already think- has. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead, no. Joel. Well, I think, though, you're looking at this is where the five-year dif- the five-year difference between Federer and Nadal and where they grow up playing, you know, Switzerland isn't that far from Spain, but it is, I don't know, it's as far as the baseline is from eight feet behind the baseline. In other words, Nadal is kind of, I consider the, the Lexon RPM blast generation. And I, and you hit it, Gil, about the kind of the, the, um, the polyester strings. Federer, Federer was still had enough schooling and kind of the, even the all gut generation, the all gut generation, not even the hybrid generation. And then of course, he evolved and he's hybrid. So there's a different way in which Federer saw the court. I mean, Roger Federer is not, you're not going to see him ever, you were never going to see him stand eight feet behind the baseline to return serve. His, his view of the whole court was that way. And then along came these others. And then I think the, the cycles, not that everything is cyclical, because I, I don't think we're ever going to see serve volley like Patrick Rafter. Um, but, but the notion of, uh, I mean, Amy, why don't you talk about it, about the whole way it's evolving now? Well, look at who the number one player in the world is and, and how he, his net skills and how often he comes to the net. And he doesn't, he's somewhere in between using serve and volley as a surprise tactic and using it with a little more regularity. Like he's, he's, and I want to do a big stats piece on this exactly how and when he's using serve and volley, but he is, he's using it more than some of those baseliners that you mentioned, like Medvedev. Um, and I think what's interesting is that because Nadal and even Djokovic and and but really Nadal and Federer had these volley skills from the get-go um it went out of vogue and they kind of adjusted and played that game and they could win that way but now that the volley it's like a chess move the the volley has come back into vogue and the shots are flattening out again um they just reach back in their old bag that they had from the early aughts and they pulled the volley back out again and they've gonna, got it. I'm going to take a little thing. I don't think Nadal had quite the volley game from the get-go. I don't think, I think he, I think he became much more comfortable about that with that more in his career, more in the 07, 08 phase. The, the, the earlier Nadal, not quite the net guy he became, I think. I don't know. I could be, I don't think he was quite as comfortable there. It didn't mean he didn't know how to volley. I just think he understood the net area as much as he's come to understand it. I, I don't think that some of these guys like Taylor Fritz or Medvedev, um, if you took them back to 16, 17 years old, I'm not sure that, um, I, I, I think that probably Rafa's volley and net skills could put theirs, could, oh. could best theirs quite well, a bit. That's- well, compared to those guys, I would say yes. But I think I, I think Nadal early in his career wasn't quite as. I mean, he became he, he became Sterling at it 
a few years into his career, but I don't think right away that was quite where he was building points. Yeah, I, I think for Nadal and Djokovic, though, it's also been a, a push-pull with um, my movement is declining, especially with, with Rafa. So I'm going to adjust. Uh, I'm going to make certain adjustments that will uh, prevent me from having to defend as much. So I think that's a part of Rafa's. Uh, I, I think both of their volley games have gotten you know much better. But I I I agree with you know we don't need to speculate on the Alcaraz thing, which a lot of people have. Oh, like who is he a pro? Who is he a process of? And and the answer is you can see Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic all in Carlos Alcaraz. It's all there. But but we don't need to like guess. Uh, Carlos, you know, has been asked as a young player. He's responded to the Nadal comparisons, and he has said every step of the way, I like to play like Federer. I want to come forward. I am extremely aggressive. He has been telling us that for anyone who would listen uh, for for a couple years now. And, um, yeah, I, I really do think that I, I think the idea of coming forward and using variety – Creative ways to finish is what I'm kind of getting at. Creative diff ways to finish points. It, it is becoming a must. And if, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, if nothing else, is going to force everyone to, to figure out how to do these things because the speed and the baseline consistency has reached a point where you better figure something out. Well, it, it's interesting, and this is a little bit of a tangent to what we've been talking about, but a, a quote I pulled from um, an interview that Roger did with the Wall Street Journal just a couple days ago, he says Alcaraz will eventually become a different player, Federer assured. A perfect example is Rafa when he was 18 to Rafa as he is now. I don't want to say it's day and night, but he's a completely different mover player attitude. And I, I think that was a reference to the amount that Carlos runs. So it's kind of like Federer was saying to Alcaraz, run while you can, <laughs> run all over the place, enjoy it. Eventually, you're going to have to change and evolve and specific tactics may come into play. You know, your serve may you may need more free points off of serve, but, um, you know, you're going to have to change like like I did, basically. Yeah. And I think Alcaraz gets that. And I think like, this is what the excitement around Alcaraz is seeing someone who's so who's so complete as a teenager. And I think I think both Roger and Rafa would say, wow, this guy's got more parts and pieces together at 19 than either of them did. That doesn't mean he's better. That doesn't mean he's beating them. It just means the, the aggregate of his game. And then to think of how he's going to, in the face of competition, need to improve. It's got to happen. People are going to challenge him. People are going to figure out ways to at least attempt to beat him. And, and then it appears that Alcaraz is kind of up for that. He seems up to that challenge. And, I, and he's going to make more parts of his game. Different. I, I like that. I think run while you can. <laughs> yeah, the funny the funny thing is that my takeaway for the U.S. Open final was uh, that Carlos actually didn't want to run anymore. He was tired of running, and he and he had the skills to kind of avoid those longer rallies because his I thought his legs were heavy in that final. So fascinating, maybe a little microcosm of uh, what a player must do as their legs begin to go. Uh, this was a good discussion on Roger. It will continue, and uh, we'll see what happens with Novak in Israel, Tel Aviv. 
That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.